Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 635 with my guest, Dr. Will Cole. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. (laughs) Oh my God, how many times have I said this? I hope I didn't catch you off guard. This podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. You've been warned. Um, I want to give a shout out. Here's a little clip uh, I recorded with my uh, my buddy Graham Elwood because I want to promote something uh, that that he's doing. So, um, congratulations on the special. It's it's so funny and so um, pointed, and it's critique of the cult of capitalism and a lot of the stuff that I talk about and believe personally on the on the show um that I, I just wanted to give it a, a shout out the name of it is manifest manifest it manifest it and it's available at all things comedy so if you go to allthingscomedy.com or their youtube channel or if you just go into youtube and and type in graham elwood manifest it you'll see it's about a little over an hour uh, special and and I, I yeah I appreciate it. it's very personal and I talk about my all my politics but my you know what got me to there and um, yeah it was it was a really cool thing and I I taped it at um, at Zany's in Chicago a club we both started at yeah and both of our headshots from the oh early oh my god your headshot. <laughs> What do you have on a sweater with a vest or something? I know I have a vest over a T-shirt. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's the 90s, Paul. Right now, somebody's listening, wearing a vest over a T-shirt and slowly slipping it off. (laughs) I had acid wash jeans with the party cuff on them, but that's not in the headshot. What was the party cuff? It was a thing. He would take the jeans because there wasn't like peg leg jeans back then, and you would like curl them up. Mm-hmm. almost into a tight ball around you so they would come down to a narrow and we called it the party cuff i don't know it's the 90s man you know it's a, it's a holdover from the late 80s that spilled in my headshot at zany's somebody sent me a picture of it looks like if i had a a grandchild 10 years ago that's how young oh I yeah look. yes yeah. we all look so young so and we were yeah we were very young and at the special, my, my brother was there with his two of his three kids. His youngest wasn't available, but his oldest daughter is 22. And she looked, she goes, how old are you in that picture, Uncle Graham? I it go, doesn't even really I look know. like you. I know. it's Because it's handsome. <laughs> is that an insult? <laughs> it's just backhanded compliments. <laughs> Your special is pretty good for someone that's not that skilled at what they do for a living. So. Have a buddy. It's a, it's, a, it's a really great special. And I uh, just wanted to, to turn the peeps onto it. And it's always nice to see you. Thanks, man. And I got to tell you, that episode we did talking about money and stuff, I've gotten so much positive feedback from people. Yeah. Um, even a couple of comics who were like, wow, that was awesome. So it was really cool. Thanks for having me back on that show to, to talk about it. It was cool. Love you, buddy. Love you too. Yeah, be, uh, be sure to check that out. Really good. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Ernie. And he says, hi, Paul, is there any way to watch dinner in a movie these days? I've never seen it, but I'd really like to. I don't suppose they made DVDs or stream it anywhere. I had trouble Googling it. It's You really can't watch anything more than a couple of YouTube clips. Um, I think the problem is that dinner in a movie was a movie hosting show. 
and you can't really air it, at least in from the viewpoint of the network, you can't air it on its own without the movie, and the movies probably aren't licensed anymore. They just don't want to go through the hassle of relicensing the movies and uh, negotiating with us or whatever that would involve. And because deep down, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but there are a couple of YouTube clips. Uh, this is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by um, a guy who calls himself W. I got to assume this is the late. Uh, <laughs> why do we call him the late president? Because I got some news. I got I I got the advance notice on something. No. Um, he writes, uh, I don't know how to phrase this. It's about dating. I'm a gay cis man. As a kid, I desperately wanted friends, but everyone seemed to hate me and ignore that I existed. I liked boyish girls before puberty and boys after. I'm undiagnosed, but strongly suspect I'm on the autism spectrum. It wasn't until I learned about autism as an adult that the pieces fell into place and I felt like I understood myself. I have a terrible memory am somewhat face-blind, cannot read the majority of social cues, apparently process emotions very differently from others, tend to be very literal, cannot visualize in my mind most of the time, and have no internal monologue. Add contamination OCD, a literal cold sweat nightmare, and panic-inducing phobia of certain insects, occasional paranoid thinking, medicated depression, and the fact that I shut down and stop caring or even trying for a while if I get overwhelmed. Also, let's sprinkle in loving but emotionally distant, conspiracy-minded parents constantly feel like I'll never be good enough or worth anything. And if my mom is to, uh, to be believed was potentially raped as a child by my stepfather and possibly father. Don't remember anything, but there are character traits of mine and some snippets of memory that don't rule the idea out completely. Generally, my emotional state is blank with a thin coating of whatever is making me feel panicked and overwhelmed that week. I don't even know how I feel a lot of the time, much less why. Can you see how I might have some trouble connecting to people? Uh, and then uh, here, thank you for the, the the preface of that. And boy, that is a lot. Um, I tend to attach to people quickly and unattach quickly. I had a 10 to 20 minute conversation with one of my roommate's friends about Linux and started planning our new life together. Sad. Um, pretty human, buddy. Pretty human. You know, when, when people grow up... Uh, in the kind of home that that you did where it wasn't safe to feel and express your feelings, um, we tend to go into our head and live in a world of fantasy. And we want to be seen and we want to connect to others, but we want to do it on our own terms and control it, which it makes vulnerability near impossible. So we live in a state of imagination because it's soothing, but ultimately it doesn't address that void in us of of love and and true connection uh so i'm going to continue with this email recently began crushing on a 23 year old at work i just turned 34 so i already feel very weird about this whole thing this feels different from any crush i had before though as we platonically talked and hung out for weeks before a strong 
sudden surge of emotions hit me nearly out of the blue. Not to be crude, but one day we're just chatting away like normal, and the next day I can feel my pulse in my testicles for hours and my face turning red anytime he was near. Never experienced that before. By the way, the National Atomic Clock is a set of red testicles. Recently began, oh, read that. One day, I'm giving him honest advice and insight into my mental illness because he's trying to talk with his partner and wants to understand them better. Lately, he's telling me how much I'm like his partner and hinting that he wants to break up with them while telling me what traits he's looking for. He was working on something that annoyed him and said, fuck me in frustration. Without thinking, I said it was too bad he was already taken. We continue to work on stuff in silence for almost an hour. Then he's suddenly back to his old self and hanging around my desk more to crack jokes while we work. The guy's from another country and briefly fought in a civil war as a teenager. He left everything to move to the States. He has a non-binary partner and often talks about how much he loves boobs and vaginas. But then one of us will say something or make a joke and we both just smile at each other in silence for a little too long. I find myself checking to see if he's looking at me and he often is. Uh, We spend all day at work smiling at each other while making dick jokes and completely ignoring any social boundaries you would expect at work. Another co-worker even privately asked me to tone it down, which I agreed to, of course. He said he never saw me acting this way before the other person joined. Um, Despite everything I've said here, I have no idea what to make any of this. Part Part of me is hoping he would be open to dating. Despite the age difference, part of me feels like this behavior is just typical guy stuff that I don't understand, and he sees me as just a good friend, but nothing more. I'm worried of ruining what's quickly blossoming into a good friendship by even entertaining the idea of something else going on, and a very sad part of me thinks that even if there was something there, the age difference would be too much and it wouldn't work out. And of course, another part of me... Me is saying, then I'm not actually attracted. This is just my regular crush bullshit that happens anytime someone gives me any attention. I honestly don't know. Thank you for sharing all of that. And what a great example of the complexity of attraction combined with childhood needs not being met. And then you throw in the workplace and then an age difference. Um, I think the two most important things that jumped out at me is this guy has a partner and I think you should respect that. Um, you can't control what he does. Well, you actually, you can set boundaries with him. Um, and it's certainly not your job to see that he respects his partner, but it is, I think, morally incumbent on you to respect, um, the person who is not in the room, you know, one, one, one of the guidelines, I think, for, and, and trust me, I am not coming from a place of all my life, I've been perfect, but I think one of the moral guidelines that is kind of uh, an easy, quick test is, would I be talking to this person if my partner or their partner were in the room? And if they weren't, don't talk to them that way. I find that to be very freeing. 
And it's not that I have the urge to cross it, but earlier in my life, I had no boundaries and I didn't, I, it was, it was whatever I could do to make me feel alive because I felt so, so dead inside, which brings me to my next piece that I think is important to consider is, are you trying to fill a void in you? And when we're trying to fill a void in us by using another human being, it's not good in the long run for us or for them. And one of the things when we're trying to fill a void is we go into fantasy about that person. We, we assign all these magical qualities to them. We only think about who we want them to be if we were in a relationship with them. We don't see them as a full three-dimensional human being uh, with, uh, with problems, with annoying tendencies. You know, all the stuff that human beings have, we, we, we objectify them, you know, it, it might not even be sexually that we're objectifying somebody. We could be objectifying them emotionally. And the last part that I want you to think about is the overall pattern, your life pattern of dealing with people, especially when there is attraction and asking yourself, and it sounds like you kind of answered this already, does this fit the pattern that I have engaged in? So those are just all things to think about. Um, I'm... I'm in no way trying to tell you what to do. I'm just sharing some of my experience from having made mistakes of not prioritizing what is important um, to grow into the direction of the guy that I want to be. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for six plus years. And one of the things that I love about therapy, love about my therapist Heidi and the way that she guides me through my issues and phobias and anxieties is uh, it, it, it helps cultivate a self-knowledge of what my patterns are. We were just talking about patterns and the tools that are best used. Sometimes it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Just ask myself, what are the facts on the ground? Uh, okay, so... Stop future tripping. Just take a deep breath and go about your day. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And uh, make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from the podcast. Greatly appreciate that. And one more survey before we get to the interview with uh, Dr. Will Cole. Uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Angry Inner Crybaby. And about her depression, she writes, postpartum depression that never went away. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. It's fucking awful. 
When unregulated, it feels like every bad thing I've ever done is going to be exposed to the world any minute, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Oh my God, that's so awful. About being a sex crime victim, why won't he just leave me alone? Um... And then just in general, she writes, I feel so fucking betrayed by my brain when I'm justifiably anger over being treated poorly or someone else being treated poorly. And when I try to confront the object of my anger, I start crying and give up about being a people pleaser. The worse you treat me, the more likely I am to try to win you over. Oh my God, do I relate to that one? Holy fuck. Snapshot from her life. Uh, people pleaser, AKA fear of abandonment. I was 22 and living in the UK after college. I always struggled with my weight and never had a serious boyfriend. Only guys who used me or good guys whom I adored, but who only wanted to be friends. I found guys over there didn't seem to mind my weight. All of a sudden I was popular with the guys, but I see now I once again was just being used. After only a couple of weeks, I got involved with a guy I now know was a narcissistic user and abuser. I felt hopelessly in love after our first night together, uh, in parentheses, the same night we met. He checked all the boxes, handsome, charismatic, funny, great accent, amazing in bed, wasn't repulsed by me, alcoholic, liar, cheater, and thief. The day I discovered he had emptied my bank account at the ATM, in the parentheses, money I was saving for my flight home because my visa was uh, about to expire, I prowled the town looking for him. I found him at his friend's flat where a party was going on in the middle of a weekday afternoon. I launched at him, hitting him on his chest and face. I couldn't stop crying while I called, called him an asshole and a thief. He pushed me away, laughed at me, and made some joke in front of everyone that I sh sure was a bitch when I was on my period. Fast forward a couple of hours and several beers later, he asked me to marry him, and I said yes. My consciousness might be disintegrating heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or with my barbies <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm going to have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Will Cole And uh, you're a leading functional medicine expert and you specialize in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and more. And you're also a podcaster and a New York yeah. Times bestselling author. So uh, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Uh, his, his son Solomon is uh, sitting in with, with us. So at some point, you know, he, he might get tired of hearing his dad talk and take <laughs> over. Uh, a really, really important topic. I'm glad you're here. 
Uh, I personally have gone through a lot of what you talk about. Um, let's let's dive right in. Talk about the brain and the gut connection. Yeah. So the gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So when we are growing in our mother's womb, when we were, the gut and brain are formed from that same tissue and they're linked inextricably through for the rest of our life through what's known in the research as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. There are far-reaching connections. There's so many things. But I mean, for example, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, stored in the gut. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut, stored in the gut. So sort of the happiness, pleasure, neurotransmitters, chemicals are made in the gut predominantly. And we have 75% of the immune systems in the gut. So inflammation is implicated in just about every health problem under the sun, with the brain included. Well, inflammation is a product of the immune system. So we have to look at where most of the immune system resides, which is in the gastrointestinal system. So there's a lot of connections there. And if you think even physically, the intestines kind of even resemble the brain. And researchers call the gut the second brain for that and many other reasons. And research is really showing now how the gut, the second brain, is influencing a lot of brain health issues. And a lot of my work for the past 13 plus years is really connecting for my patients the fact that mental health is not separate from physical health. And in the West, we like to separate it as relegating it to sort of this abstract, theoretical, chemical imbalance. But really, mental health is physical health. And, then as our, and our brain is a part of our body just like anything else. And the old thought of the brain was that it was immune privileged, right? The, the brain had the blood-brain barrier and it, there was no such thing as neuroinflammation but now we know the brain has its old, whole set of uh, immune system called the microglial cells. And in check, just like anything else, inflammation imbalance is a healthy part of our immune system. It fights off viruses and bacteria and heals wounds. But chronic inflammation is that you know forest fire that, that burns in perpetuity. That's the problem. And that's what's associated with, again, just about every health problem, chronic you know, uh, heart disease, ca- uh, cancer diabetes, digestive problems, musculoskeletal issues, autoimmune problems too, this epidemic of mental health A lack issues. of energy. Fatigue, brain fog, for sure. And there's a field of research called the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers for the past, really over the past decade, looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact mental health? So it's a central part of my work in functional medicine. I've been doing telehealth for the past 13 plus years, looking at labs and getting those labs looking well. So Gut Feelings, the book, is just really an outpouring of seeing that and really showing the reader the research and what my clinical experience has taught me over the years. And there are uh, recipes in there, uh, practical things that people can do to start healing yeah. Their gut. Give me a uh, kind of a typical example of uh, a patient uh, that mm-hmm. you worked with. I mean, obviously, you know, you're not going to specifically say everything, and, yeah. and because of privacy, but <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, an amalgamation. That- sure. Oh yeah. I mean, because I do see varying degrees of the same thing. It, it manifests in different ways, but oftentimes when you look beneath the surface, there's some commonalities that you see especially for seeing things for so long. But, you know, I think it's a, a variety variety of different inflammatory problems that kind of, well, oftentimes you'll see on the list of things they want to optimize, things like fatigue, 
brain fog. Those, interestingly enough, I've found over the years don't always go hand in hand. That some people can have a, they'll have both, but they could have a great energy day, but they still have that word recall, mm-hmm. name recall issue. They feel like hungover, even though they're not hungover. Um, but sometimes they do go hand in hand. And obviously, the more tired somebody is, the more it's, it can exacerbate brain fog. But it's not always the same entity. Then we see a lot of digestive problems, bloating, IBS issues, people that have different things that we find on labs like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is – Is that the yeast? It's bacterial, but there's something called SIFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth, which can go hand in hand both. But SIBO and SIFO are really the leading causes of people that have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And that's quite associated with things like anxiety and depression as well. And, and I had it for years and had no idea. And somebody turned me on to the Body Ecology okay. uh, book and it – it changed my life. I had no idea that the Western diet was overly sweet and overly yeah. acidic. Yeah. And so once I started eating more greens and doing all these other things, at yeah. first I felt horrible. But it said the first four weeks, all of these things are going to be dying. Yeah. The bad things are going to be dying. And slowly you will feel more energy. And yeah. lo and behold, I did. That's amazing. Amazing. It's the power of... We ha- we wield, and so many people just settle for it. They just think, "Oh, this is me." I'll take a pill. Yeah, I'll take a pill. Which you know, if that helps you. But a lot of people are doing the pills, but are still struggling. It's may- just a band aid. Yeah, it's maybe taking the edge off of it, right? But there's a whole sea of people that are extremely compliant people. I talk to them. They've done all the things. They've exhausted all the mainstream options, but they're still spinning their wheels. And it's like, let's go upstream now. Let's kind of get to the root cause and. The sort of the gut feeling conversation that I'm having in the book, but the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the psychological are really two sides of the same coin that are impacting the inflammation because inflammation is the commonality of these health problems. And when but you say ulti- inflammation, you mean in the, in the gut, not yeah. necessarily the rest of the body? Well, it's, it's, it's originating in the gut. It can be in the gut, but ultimately it's systemic inflammation, meaning it's pervasively around the body. But as somebody that can have leaky gut syndrome, they can have what they call in the research, the like layman term is it, is um, leaky brain syndrome. It's basically increased blood-brain barrier permeability. Things are passing through the blood-brain barrier permeability, triggering that microglial cells, the brain's immune system. And that pruning system, the brain's immune system, that imbalance, it's a good thing. It's kind of cleans up dead neuronal cells. and But when it's triggered and there's a neuroinflammatory cascade it that that pruning system becomes an assassin and that's what's associated with things like anxiety brain fog fatigue depression and the like and then obviously when i talk about systemic inflammation that can manifest in myriad of different ways when you're talking about autoimmune conditions i mean there's over a hundred different autoimmune conditions that science recognizes today and we just like to label things a hundred different ways right i mean it's just where the immune system attacks so if it's against the thyroid we call it hashimoto's disease if it's against the myelin sheath we call it ms but the commonality is this this forest fire that's burning your body turning on you exactly yeah yeah uh, I was baffled because uh, joint pain just kept moving around my body and physical therapist said you might want to get tested for the RA marker and I have it. Mm. And uh, so I immediately started doing the diet that they say you know is good for arthritis and boy, my symptoms 
went away so quickly. Um, But there's a surrender in having to give up sugar Mm -hmm. and white flour. And I mean, I'm not a drinker, but if I was, Mm -hmm. I would have to give up alcohol. I had to give up, you know, smoking cigars. Uh, It it is a commitment. It is a commitment. And what percentage of people do you get that come in there that are willing to do the work? Well, I would say almost a hundred percent of them because they've made the decision already to come to me, right? They know they know enough about me to know that we're going to talk about food. At least food's going to be a part of the their journey. Now it's but it's the science and the art. I want to be pragmatic, and sometimes we have to make con- concessions. We have to make practical adjustments to the protocol to make it more sustainable and more realistic for them. You have to meet a person where they're at. And sometimes I would rather be going with plan B, even though I know plan A theoretically makes the most sense. But if there's less stress and anxiety and obsession around plan B and they're like, they feel more comfortable, it's more sustainable for them. That's going to be a bigger win for them and me. And and I imagine, you know, if they it's somebody's birthday and they have a big piece of cake filled with sugar, they're not having it every week or yeah. or every month. Uh, you know, they just get back on track. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there should be a grace and lightness to this. And look, some people they will quote unquote pay for it earlier on in their journey if they make allowances like that, depending on how resistant or res- lack of resilience they have my my goal is to for every one of my patients to gain resilience over time so they can't have that birthday cake or go on vacation or whatever the case may be and not pay for it but you know we all it's the the bucket analogy some people have big buckets some people have small buckets that's their to- their, their bio individual j- tolerance for stressors mm-hmm. and we want to do everything we can to empty that bucket i mean the bucket size is genetics largely We can't change our bucket size, but we can change what we put in it. And when we empty the bucket significantly over time by dealing with the things that I talk about in the book, like the underlying gut problems and then things like unresolved trauma and chronic stressors and this sort of dysregulated nervous system issue, then you don't pay for things. You have So it's not just about diet. No, no, it's It's, not. So uh, let's talk about unresolved trauma. So that's the feeling part of gut feelings, right? I I wanted to really show people – what does a functional medicine protocol look like? So I put 42 of my like favorite things that I've seen to be effective for people that have things like mental health issues as well as autoimmune problems. Those are the, the predominance of the people that I see. Um, so the feeling side is it's, it's a lot more nebulous, right? Because it's easy and prescriptive for me to say, okay, these foods – whatever foods we're talking about, are most likely to love you back and calm inflammation, support your gut health. These are the foods that are most likely to disrupt it and raise inflammation, decrease those. People like that. Many people like that. They cut and dried. It's black and white. And it's, you know, it's, (laughs) they see it on paper and they can execute it. It may not be natural at first, but they'll figure it out with our help. But it's a lot more of a big, complex topic to then say, well, don't stress or don't have shame or don't have unresolved trauma. And that's where the big complex things that I wanted to really talk about in the book that it's, we need to show up for ourselves in those ways too. And really realize that our thoughts and our words and our experiences, they are like books for ourselves. They, our body is a cellular library and the things we're taking in over the course of our life is accumulating in this cellular library that is our body. And we just need to work on just 
shifting out the books and the shelves. And it's not going to happen overnight, but you make sort of a critical mass shift, that tipping point into wellness where these things, we start to retrain our nervous system really what happens. Because what happens with most people, and I'm sure you see this too, most people are stuck at varying degrees of that sympathetic fight or flight stress state. Their autonomic nervous system is dysregulated, hypervigilant because of that sympathetic over activation. But the so, so much of what I'm doing with patients is supporting their parasympathetic. How do we can, can we get that resting, digesting mechanism up? So it's kind of like nervous system exercise. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've come across people that live on Twitter uh, that are an emotional <laughs> mess. They're wound so tight. They're ready to drop the proverbial gloves. Uh, it's, it's really scary. It is, yeah. Social media is a massive, I mean, that's a big section of the book is just our relationship with technology, right? Because it does impact. It's feeding our already like stress in life. Then we go into this sort of virtual world that's completely adding to that fight or flight response. And it's also in many ways giving us that sort of cheap dopamine hit too, right? Because right? we can be these keyboard warriors and say what we would I'm never say. I'm making a difference with yeah, my right. pithy, biting remark. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, I don't know if anything's ever actually been solved by a tweet. Yeah. Well, wondering whether or not you hate someone that's probably been solved on, yeah, on Twitter. Right. But no, how much edification? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great vehicle. I mean, I love, I think social media can be used for great things. But yeah. if it's a source of like this endless FOMO inducing content, if it's a source of anger and vitriol against the other, I don't know how much it's good for your health. It's right. probably contributing to the inflammation that you're going yeah. through. I, and, and a simple switch, I think, can be, you know, watching funny animal videos. Watching I love animal it. best friend videos. I watch whale videos on social media. Yeah. It's so relaxing to me. They're just like this sacred, majestic creature. So that's how I use social media. <laughs> it's inspirational quotes and whales. Uh, one of the uh, things that y- you talk about is uh, you use the word somatic. Talk about that, especially in relation to trauma. Yeah. So somatic is just a term that really describes the body. It's And somatic practices is really to uh, – uh, is a, the theory that trauma is stored in the body. It's really not a theory at this point. Research really shows that, that trauma is literally stored in the body and – it impacts things like methylation. Methylation is this big biochemical sort of super highway that impacts detox pathways, impacts inflammation, impacts how neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, GABA are expressed, acetylcholine is expressed. And we know it is not just our current trauma in our life cumulatively, but also even I talk about in the book intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma. So somatic practices are one tool on the feeling side of that gut feeling sort of duality of healing that um, is a way to metabolize stored stress and trauma in your body, in your cells. So – it's a broad group of different exercises or therapies or modalities. Things like yoga would be considered a somatic. So many people know yoga, but it's this sort of movement medicine. And when you hear it, even if you've ever been to a yoga class, I've been to so many, and I hear yoga teachers really say the same thing. When, pe- when, people, when their students do the hip openers, 
People cry. Right. People cry. Yeah. You hear that? And that's that somatic release of things that they may not even know that they had it stored in their body. They don't even know why they're crying. So who who knows, right? It's 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 sometimes inexplicable where it's coming from. But uh, things like Tai Chi, dancing, drumming, ta- uh, body tapping, there's a lot of things people can do that have been shown in the research to really be good at sort of cathartically clearing that stuff and, out. And would you include EMDR in that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's something that I explore in the book. But yeah, it would be considered a somatic because yeah. you're actually moving the body and clearing things out. Yeah. yeah. I, I had a really powerful EMDR session years ago. And the next time I went to play hockey, I felt 10 years younger. It felt mm. my, like my body had been rusty and I'd just been oiled. And it was, it was, it was mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, and another positive, uh, thing that I, that I experience and I highly recommend is somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, have you had any experience, uh, with that reading about it or knowing practitioners? Yeah, for sure. It's something that we integrate a lot with our patients and when it's needed. And I talk about it in the book as well. And I don't know if you'd consider this. In the book, I kind of separated it. But um, breath work. I think breath work can be quite a somatic experience. Solomon and I, who's my son, he's 16 years old, we actually went to a holotropic breath work class the other day. And it's, it is, if anyone knows the research around holotropic, it's really, I'm sure you do, but it's, it really came to be because of studying psychedelics and Mm -hmm. the effect on the nervous system, but really how can you elicit similar responses with breath to have these somatic experiences? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a sort of non-medicinal compound, if you will, that you're just really tapping to endogenous medicinal compounds, like things within our own nervous system and brain that we can produce. Um, So yeah. I was just talking on the phone with somebody yesterday and we were saying, is there anything a deep breath can't help with? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Kind words and deep breaths are pretty pretty powerful. Um, So uh, we talked about trauma. We've talked about diet. Um, What's another factor that leads to the shame flammation as you talk about it? Yes. That's the term I use in the book and with my patients. It's really this depiction of how these mental, emotional, spiritual things like chronic stress, like shame, like trauma. And shame is the reason why I use that term is that really that's how a lot of my patients feel when they when you're going through trauma, shame's a common emotion during trauma. Even during chronic stressful times, if someone's just perpetually in, in stress, they you know, they normalize it, right? They feel varying degrees of of shame too. Like they're not being the right the best parent because they're stressed. They they snap at their loved ones because they're stressed. They don't do all the things they need they know they need to do for their wellness because they're stressed. There's a lot of shame with chronic stress. And then there's a lot of health related shame too. Like people shame with their bodies, people shame with food and all the wellnessy things they think they should be doing. So shame inflammation is really looking at how these mental, emotional, spiritual things impact our physical health, i.e. raising inflammation and dysregulating our nervous system. Uh, one of the things that you say is that you can't heal uh, a body that you hate. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, that's a major point of our work of kind of shifting the paradigm of why we're doing these things. Because, you know, there's so much, I think, like confusion out there when it comes to diet culture and then there's like the anti-diet culture and they're both kind of saying extreme things on what food is and sort of a third way 
this middle ground way that I talk about in the book is food peace. It's, it's really holding both truths instead of either or. It should be a both and approach. And the fact that absolutely we shouldn't be shaming our way into wellness or obsessing our way into health and you can't heal a body you hate. Yes, that is true. And I think toxic diet culture really does perpetuate that. What do you mean when you say a toxic diet culture focused on losing weight as opposed to m- making sure that you give yourself good fuel? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's it's is that eat more, eat less, work out more, getting thin, 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 you know, the sort of that. I think it's still a factor for today, certainly, but I think its heyday was really in the 90s that sort of the wellness world was a lot of that, right? It was mm-hmm. a lot about outer image and thinness, not actual wellness. And people got thin, but they weren't necessarily healthy. And like toxic anti-diet culture, which I talk about this sort of toxic tribalism within wellness in the book, that anti-diet culture is really a sort of – removing all sense of logic when it comes to just basic nutrition facts. Like there's going to be foods that mess up your blood sugar. There's going to be foods that make you metabolically unhealthy. There's going to be foods that raise inflammation, impact your digestion and throw off your hormones. Avoiding those foods isn't restrictive. It's self-respect. And it's really having this conversation with that, like how can you really, it shouldn't be a list of rules and dogmatic, punitive I can't have those foods. That's what diet culture really says. But really opening up this paradigm shift to I can eat whatever I want. I just – like you said, I want to eat foods that fuel me. I want to eat foods that love me back and avoiding things – Things that don't love me back. I just, it's a bad trade off to eat something that's going to dim my light. Right. It, it, you can eat it, you're just going to pay a price for it. Yeah. And so, having a list of things that you know what the cost is of them. And, and I've had days where, you know, I ate fried food, I, I had sugar, and mm-hmm. my joints hurt the next day. I couldn't even play get guitar and i was like mm-hmm. okay that was that was the price i paid i'd probably still do it again because i had a great time and i yeah. hadn't had those foods in a while but mm-hmm. got back on track and just having that information uh is is so important and and it i think it helps us feel less stressed when we just at least have the information rather mm-hmm. than we feel like I have to belong to some type of cult where I have to do everything perfectly. Otherwise, I'm going to feel just as miserable as I do right now. Yeah, exactly. The way that I put it to patients is they kind of get their north. They find like their center and they can pivot from that center, like you say, and make some mindful, intuitive, educated decisions but you know your center and you can get back to the center instead of floundering and disillusionment and food confusion and you know you don't know which way is up and down i feel like that's a place of again food peace and sort of freedom to make these decisions for yourself yeah uh so what are some diet adjustments in general people could do is particularly people in western cultures to help um, get away from the uh, excess sugar and the mm-hmm. excess uh, acidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would be first of all with sugar. We all have varying degrees of tolerance for sugars, right? And some people have more what we know as insulin sensitivity, meaning they could eat more and they're not going to have a huge glucose response, and it's fine. So I don't want to make broad sweeping statements on this but i think people in general need to look at the amount of added grams of added amount of grams of added sugar they're consuming in a day 
the statistics speak for themselves that most Americans are consuming too much. And especially when you're putting that into context with just a few generations before us. I mean, we are eating a lot more sugar. I think it's about 60, 70 pounds, depending on the study that you look at, that the average human's consuming in a year of sugar. And that's the processed stuff, let alone all the other stuff that adds up as well. Let's talk about the difference b- uh, between different types of sugars and uh, how how they affect the body, which um, are some considered good or healthy? Yeah. If you're going to reach for a sugar, what what is the best sugar to reach for? Sure. The more processed and refined the sugar is, so when you think of that, think of like the white table sugar, even sort of brown uh, sugar, all of the powdered stuff is going to be to varying degrees more processed or refined. That stuff's going to have a more – uh, extreme glucose spike, meaning it's going to impact your blood sugar, raising inflammation, impacting your gut microbiome, feeding those bacterial and fungal overgrowths we talked about earlier, and really just perpetuating dysfunction in, in the brain and the body. Um, the more I would say nutrition has some merit, I guess, as far as nutrition is concerned, are going to be more of the like pure things like manuka honey comes to mind. Manuka honey is in many ways, a whole food, right? It has nutritional compounds that have been shown to support the immune system and actually support a healthy gut, but it still has sugar in it. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a bit of a sort of yin and yang to that food where you don't need a lot of it, but and it's actually quite a potent food medicine. Same with a pure maple syrup. I think that there's, it's still sugar, but it has minerals and compounds in it that make it a little bit more nutritive. Um, I'm a fan of... In small amounts, more uh, like natural, lower carb sweeteners. Now, they're still refined to a degree, right? Because like for a stevia or stevia is a good example of that. You're not – unless you're going and picking the green plant, the leaf, the stevia leaf, it's still going to be refined in a powder or like a tincture form. But it's not going to have the same glycemic or insulin response, glucose response as you would with regular conventional table sugar um, or you know cane sugar. So I would prefer something like stevia or stevia, uh, something like xylitol, allulose, monk fruit. These things in- – I was shocked at how good monk fruit sugar I, tastes. I love it. Yeah. Blew my mind. And it's really – it loves most people back, right? Yeah. In high amounts, some of these natural low-carb sweeteners can cause some GI upset in some people. But you're not supposed to use a lot of those anyways. But they still – and people could do this experiment for themselves. It's like – they have a lot of these direct-to-consumer continuous glucose monitors now, the CGMs you wear in your arm for like two weeks to four weeks, and you can see how these foods impact you. So it doesn't have to be some doctor pontificating about it or some sort of abstract study that you're hearing or a podcast you're listening to. They can actually see their own N of 1 experiment. How are these sugars impacting how they feel? And they may see when their blood sugar is all over the place, it's really impacting their mood or their energy levels and their inflammation levels. So – just be mindful, you know, even as an experiment, you could track in a food tracking app for a few weeks just to use it as a mindfulness experiment to kind of see and gain awareness on, whoa, I didn't realize how much sugar I was consuming in a day because it's hidden in so many things. So I get it from a consumer standpoint. It's a lot to take in, but that's why paring it down, simplifying it, reading labels, and then maybe using a food tracking app or CGM in some ways to kind of get mindful about the decisions that we make with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, any other things that that you want to talk about related to 
the nutrition. Yeah, I, I mean, some things to think about. I mean, I think um, industrial seed oils are uh, an interesting thing I talk about in the book. Them by themselves, this is kind of controversial for me to say in the wellness space because they are very much demonized in the wellness space typically, right? Um, like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil. And I agree, they're not healthy foods. But I don't think that they are inherently, especially if they're organic, are evil as much as I think the modern American diet is so out of proportion omega-6 that it's just adding to that fire of that that dysregulation or that imbalance of these polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs. But we want higher omega-3s and then lower six and nine. And so what are some oil choices for those? So fish is the best source of long-chain omega-3s. So if you have some, let's say, boxed crackers with canola oil in it, if you're having so much good omega-3s, it's not going to matter as much. But if you're not having these omega-3s and you're having a lot of packaged foods that have canola oil and vegetable oil and soybean oil, it's going to contribute to inflammation and can impact a lot of people's digestion and they don't even know it. I see people that go off of canola oil and then had it at a restaurant because it's used in a lot of restaurants, right? If you ask what oil your food is cooked in, you'd be surprised. It's normally not a great oil. Um, it can really impact people's digestion there. Um, so – other than fish, that's not really oil. Oils to cook with would be things like avocado oil, ghee, coconut oil, if it suits you, um, lard and tallow if it's, if it's grass-fed and organic. Um, olive oil, if it's refined, has a higher smoking point. Is it, would that be extra virgin or Extra not? virgin is wonderful as far as polyphenol antioxidant content, but it doesn't have a high smoking point. So you would want to use extra virgin with all its amazing antioxidants. In as a room temperature, like a salad dressing. Gotcha. Yeah. So those are some things to cook with and or use as dressings. Uh, anything else? No, I think I could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's plug uh, your your upcoming book. It's called Gut Feelings: Healing the Shame Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel, and uh, it's on sale March twenty first. Uh, and we will be timing the release of this episode, so it should be available um, as you're as you're hearing this. And you also have a podcast called The Art of Well Being. Um, is uh, do you enjoy podcasting? I do. Yeah, it, the art of being well. It's 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 been a joy. I've done it for the past two plus years at this point. I actually did the, another podcast called Goop Fellas before that. So yeah, it's a great. You know, a lot of my job with my patients is talking, right, and asking questions and like holding space for somebody and being inquisitive and curious. So I find that that suits that skill set's been honed for the past thirteen years clinically. That it's like a natural. Like getting to learn about different things, I'm sure. So let's say somebody's listening right now and they're like, wow, that's a lot of information. I feel paralyzed. <laughs> What's a first small first step that you would suggest they take? Well, I mean, I would say, again, it's really something that you mentioned earlier. It's you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into health. So I know that's more abstract, but I would just maybe – Really take in what you can take in and don't feel stressed or overwhelmed. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an aficionado of wellness. And I think a lot of people, because of shame, they get that paralysis of analysis. Like they're just like mm -hmm. learning. They're just overwhelmed. They don't, they just feel it's insurmountable. It's overwhelming. What do I do? I just feel like the body is amazingly resilient. And I have found that if people just do 
small things but are consistent with the small things and can lean in, then when you get that your head above that proverbial water, then you naturally have more resilience. Yeah. You have more ma- bandwidth to handle things. Things are less overwhelming when you're less inflamed and you feel better. And you want to keep doing the things that love you back. There is a momentum to yeah. healing and there's a momentum to, to trauma, un- and, unhealed and trauma. Yes. Uh, two things I highly recommend is when – and it sounds so stupid, but when you're tired, allow yourself a nap. I love that. And it's okay to not watch the news. <laughs> Those are two great, great tips. Yeah. I, yeah. Th- those have helped me immensely. And those were letting go of the shame, the yeah. shame of taking a nap and the shame of I'm not as well-informed as I yeah. should be. Well, it's mentally affecting me. Yeah. It's like if, if you're in an underground parking garage and everybody else is sucking in carbon monoxide, you're not a bad person because you couldn't hang as long. <laughs> do what you need to do. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yes. Words of wisdom. Uh, well, uh, Will, I appreciate you. You're coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Many, many thanks to him. I uh, really enjoyed talking to him. Um, before we dive into some surveys, uh, if you've ever thought about uh, supporting the podcast financially, it would be awesome. We could really use some financial support, uh, especially monthly donors through Patreon or PayPal. All those links are on the website. You could do for as little as a dollar a month in it. Every little bit makes makes all the difference in the world because advertisers come and go, and the the monthly donors are the ones that that really truly keep it uh, alive. So just throwing that out there. And if you can't support it financially, uh, give us a rating on iTunes or spread the word uh, through social media. Tell your friends about it. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Horse Horse Girl. And uh, she writes, I wish I could go back to when I was around 11 years old doing laundry with my mom. We argued over something, as we did 90% of the time. And I vividly remember my mother saying, I wish you were more like Charlotte and Rita, my then two best friends from school. I bet they don't talk to their mums the way you do. If I could go back to this moment, I would whisper in my ear and say, hey, Your mom is in survival mode because of shit going on in the family. It has nothing to do with you, and you are not a mean child. You are just responding over a frustrating family dynamic that she is not addressing. You haven't said anything wrong. Then I would lean in and look my 11-year-old self in the eyes and say, Truth is, you are a great daughter. You are very kind, almost too kind, and you are so funny. And you truly are a good friend to those you care about. You don't have to please people to make them love you. Set boundaries and follow your gut feeling. Draw, sing, speak up, dance, and say no when someone treats you badly. Take that with you into the rest of your life and let your mom deal with her own shit. It's not yours. Damn, that was fucking great. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Patrick, and he writes, Have you tried using the new chat AI programs to just get things off your mind? That is such a great question. Um, and so I thought, you know, why don't, why don't I see if, uh, is it GPT chat or chat GPT? I'm so fucking old. 
I said, do you have any questions? Uh, or I typed, do you have any questions for Paul Gilmartin? <laughs> it responded, as an AI language model, I don't have personal preferences or opinions and therefore don't have specific questions for individuals. However, if you are referring to Paul Gilmartin, the comedian and former host of the podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour, some potential questions that could be asked are, uh, what inspired you to start the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast and what were your goals? Well, I started it um, because I had a premonition that some fucking AI chatbot was going to uh, kick me off the show and I had a nervous breakdown. Has mental health stigma evolved over the years and what do you think needs to be done to continue reducing it? Uh, I think it has evolved and I think eating over the sink at midnight is our only hope. Do you think humor and comedy can be used to address serious issues like mental illness, addiction, and trauma? No, I do not. What advice would you give to someone who is struggling with their mental health? Lose my number. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned from the guests on your podcast? I've learned nothing. It's been 12 years, and each week is a consistent waste of time. If anybody's a new listener, oh, that is a bad introduction to the podcast. I have, you know, what I got to let go of is the fear that not that there somebody is going to misinterpret my joke or attempted a joke, and uh, and it's going to destroy everything. Wait, where the fuck does that come from? The need to be understood by everybody—it's exhausting. So I had a question for. Uh, GPT chat. I said, should I climb Mount Everest in sandals or slippers? And it responded, if you are considering climbing Mount Everest or any other mountain, it is important to do so with proper gear and equipment and to consult with experienced mountaineers and guides who can advise you on the best practices for your safety and success. Please note that climbing Mount Everest Everest can be a very risky and dangerous activity, and many people have lost their lives attempting to summit the mountain. Actually, most of them have died after summiting the mountain on their way back, so suck on that, GPT. Therefore, it is crucial to take safety precautions seriously and to only attempt the climb if you have the necessary skills, experience, and support to do so safely. You know, on the left-hand side of the screen, they have all of the chats that you have instigated and just a couple of words to kind of condense what it was about. <laughs> For this one, it just said, no sandals, exclamation point. Yeah, if you climb Mount Everest, you will see that in the death zone, littered with flip-flops littered this is from the shame and secret survey this is filled filled out by a woman who calls herself bipolar penguin she identifies as bisexual she's in her 20s says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment when i got to adolescence i recognized a lot of tension and dysfunction behind the curtain of our family i like that phrase behind the curtain of our family that's that's that, that says everything. Uh, they tried their best, but things kept slipping through the cracks for me to notice. 
Uh, she has never been sexually abused. She has been emotionally abused uh, by multiple people, mostly romantic exes. Uh, she does not have a relationship with any of them and no positive experiences. Darkest thoughts, killing other people. I think about turning all the emotional pain I'm experiencing and making it a physical experience for those that cause it. I would never act on it and I'm not a violent person, but I have had the American psycho type of imaginings towards violence on those who have abused me in the past. I have even had these thoughts on those just walking past me as well, never towards animals. Darkest Secrets. There are only two people in this world that know about my experience with bipolar type 1 and psychosis. I am terrified of it being brought to light. I work as a middle school teacher. I actively hallucinate during classes and am am largely able to conduct reality checks by recognizing that no one else reacts and then just act as though nothing is happening. There are times where my bipolar irritation has gotten the best of me, though, and I fear the day I am not able to recognize reality versus delusion and act out accordingly in a possibly dangerous way. I dread being found out. I feel like I will lose all respect of those around me and my career will fall into ruins. This is the whole reason I refuse to enter a hospital for a short amount of time, though my support team has urged me to do so. Wow, that is intense. Intense. That that seems like balancing on a knife's edge pro- professionally. Um, and I don't know if you said that you were on medication or not. And if you're not, I, I really hope that that is something that you uh, would would consider. And consider listening to your support team because, I mean... You don't want to create wreckage that that you can't undo, especially if it affects you uh, professionally. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. First of all, I want to say that I recognize all my fantasies are very oppositional to my faith and belief system. I am a strong Christian and even work at a private Christian school. However, when I allow myself to use my imagination and sexual activities, it often leads to very gar- gothic and dark fantasies. I've thought about cutting my partner and watching them bleed during climax. I often am most turned on by minor-based songs. Think of artists like Billie Eilish or Evanescence. I can picture a sexual activity in a cemetery with the bloodletting and ritualistic environment Often with a woman, though, I identify myself as straight and would never feel comfortable trying with another woman due to my religion. I still imagine only women during masturbation. Thank you for sharing that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? It would be beneficial to talk to those who have hurt me in the past. I would like to tell them how their behavior impacted my life over a significant amount of time. It would also be helpful to tell them how good my life and relationships are now despite those consequences. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for the ability to accept myself with my diagnoses and be able to normalize psychosis and the more serious mental illness symptoms that are still taboo in our society. 
Have you shared these things with others? I have not shared any of the sexual tendencies. I am too ashamed to. There's no reason you should be ashamed of those. Um, You're not harming anybody in real life, and they bring you pleasure to think about those. And I think the majority of people's sexual fantasies are not in line with their moral code. And if you read a book called The Erotic Mind by Jack Morin, he says that is the, the, the very thing that turbocharges Uh, The eroticism of our fantasies are those moral hurdles. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? Slightly more free, but still largely ashamed. Well, I hope you can let the the shame go. And I really hope that you can get to a place where um, you don't feel like you could lose it and endanger your career uh, at any any time. That seems like a, a very precarious place to be. This is from the love survey filled out before anxiety was cool. I didn't catch that one before. And they write, I love sitting on the couch next to my lovely wife on a cold night as we enjoy some evening TV. That's such a simple one, but I love it so much. I love doing that with my girlfriend. And I especially love when we share a blanket. I don't know. There's something so, I don't know, intimate about sharing a blanket with somebody. And, of course, Gracie is always laying all over her and uh, igniting her allergies. But she loves Gracie so much, she uh, she endures it. Gracie has that power. Where is she? Where are you? Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a trans man who calls himself longing to be a stay-at-home parent to my inner child. He identifies... As bisexual, he's 23. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He was a victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, My stepdad started grooming me pretty much the moment he came into my life. I felt so special that he liked me the most, uh, liked me the most out of my siblings, and that he thought I was mature enough to have adult conversations oh my god boy that is the fishing lure that draws so many kids in and predators are so good at dangling that making kids feel like they're grown up the conversations quickly became sexual he would take me out on what were basically dates and he'd take me to work with him he would talk about if only he were a little younger or i were a little older i was literally nine years old He would ask me if I masturbate and would describe how to do it under the guise of telling me what not to do. He talked about the sex he'd have with my mom. I was constantly in bed or sleeping with him, and he'd always want to spoon and be pressed right up against me. Eventually, he would pull on the waistband of my shorts and underwear while I was standing to pull himself off the couch, and he'd peek at my exposed privates. He'd pick me up but he'd use one hand on my crotch to do so. He'd change in front of me. He'd ask me uh, if I have... uh, He'd ask me if I would have a baby with him if if it was the only way he could have one since my mom had her tubes tied already. He'd trick me into touching his penis through his shorts. It was hard. I was a very heavy sleeper at that age to the point that I still wore pull-ups to bed because I never woke up if I had to pee at night. 
I shudder to think about what happened all those nights I slept in bed with him, but also, since I don't have any outright memories of him touching me on purpose, boy, there don't have to be. With the shit that he did with you, that is full-on, full-scale sexual abuse. Uh, I sometimes still think things weren't actually that bad. And that's one of the things that survivors do to minimize it. Because the truth that shit like that can happen in the world is very, very scary. And somehow minimizing things is our brain's way of making the world feel safer. But that was... That is fucking horrifying. Horrifying. Um, I liked his advances at the time and sometimes wished he'd go further and actually have sex with me. I fantasized about having sex with him for years, so I feel ashamed like I seduced him and wanted it even though I was just a kid. You should listen to the Leah McCord episode. She talks very eloquently about being groomed by her father and and there being instances where she initiated the sexual contact, but these are things that were done after you were groomed. And that is a different, it is up to the parent to set the boundary. The child doesn't know. Child, children may be curious, etc., etc. That is not an excuse. And I know that seems really obvious, but if you're listening, um, I just I, I just hope you're you're hearing that. My therapist reported it as a mandatory reporter, and I told my mom in his office that day. Nothing came of the CPS investigation, and my parents believed me, but pretty much ignored the topic. I changed therapists not long after, and then spent years again trying to forget about what had come up that day. Boy, that is some heavy. Heavy shit. Uh, He has been physically abused and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, obviously. The grooming process from my stepdad could be very enjoyable. He'd take me to all sorts of places and restaurants. He'd give me gifts. He showed me lots of movies and made me feel attractive. This doesn't really complicate my feelings towards him nowadays because what he did to my family is unacceptable and I know it was all manipulation. I do have very complicated feelings about my two exes because they had both experienced sexual abuses as children like me, as children, and like me, both really seemed to try to help me. I actually still often run back to the older one from that relationship. I've met up with him several times for sex and drinks, and I sometimes think about going back to him because I just want him to take care of me and be my daddy. Darkest thoughts. I hate my mom sometimes for letting it happen. She moved this man into our house after a couple of months of talking online and married him within a couple of weeks. It's like she had no interest in finding about out about the kind of person she was exposing her kids to. And that's so similar to the question that that listener submitted at the at the beginning of the episode. It's like you just want that fantasy to be true, to fill something in, in, in 
inside yourself, inside ourselves. Uh, I used to think about killing the kid of my younger ex in front of him to make him suffer, but I'd never actually do it. It was just nice to fantasize about putting him in what me must be the worst emotional pain someone can go through. He was always the one who seemed to go out of his way to hurt me on purpose. Darkest secrets. When I was being abused, I would also be inappropriate with and abuse my little brother. I feel so ashamed because I feel like I was old enough to know better. I think I was 11 the last time it happened. Now, 11 is a pure, innocent child. Nowhere near an adult. Brain of a child, innocence of a child. It's a big reason why I think of myself as an awful person who doesn't deserve to be alive. I hope you can let go of that thought about yourself. I'm in a long-term relationship, but I still sometimes want to meet up with my ex. I'm 23 and he's 46 now. When my mental health gets really bad, I'll find myself reaching out to him and meeting up. The whole time I'll be telling myself it's a bad idea and asking myself why, but nevertheless, I usually find myself in his lap at a bar downtown screaming at myself to leave. It hasn't ever gotten as far as having sex. Uh, He usually ends up deciding for me that I should go home because he doesn't want to jeopardize my relationship. Anytime I run into him when I'm feeling bad, he gives me 10 times more emotional support than anyone else. He's the only person in my life able to relate to me when it comes to the abuse. Most of our conversations will revolve around that and what I can do to heal. I know he cares about me, but I also know I should stay away from him, from someone who was totally fine with being in an unhealthy relationship with me when I was just 17. Boy, boy. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Getting back with my ex or just older men in general. I want them to be gentle and loving towards me and make me feel young and attractive. At the same time, I also want them to hurt me sadistically. After sharing that, I don't feel much different. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to and why? I would tell my mom how it makes me feel knowing that she didn't really protect me or my siblings. I would tell her that it's her fault her adult children avoid her because she was both overprotective, she even pulled me out of sex ed at 11, rarely gave us freedom to hang out with friends, tracked our every move with GPS, etc., and incapable of protecting us from her husband. You know what might be helpful would be to write the letter that you want to read to your mom. And you don't have to to read it to her, but to just get those feelings out. Um, you might you might find some satisfaction. I don't know what the right word is in that. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to stop using substances and older men to cope. At the same time, I wish for a daddy to take care of me. Boy, you're so honest. This is such a painfully beautiful survey um, because you're, you're, it's like you're caught in these cycles of self-soothing that aren't serving you anymore, but you're so painfully aware of the, the hurt that you, that you still carry. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, and then finally, this is uh, some loves from, I like how I said that as if 
we're all surprised by by the fact that I'm pulling up some loves. These are some some loves. This is from the love survey filled out by Little Flea. And they write, I love the smell of corn tortillas warming up on the comal, especially when I wake up to it in the morning. Oh, that is a great one. I don't think I've ever woken up to uh, corn tortillas cooking on a comal. But uh, do you like how I pronounce that comal? Just trying to be a little less stiff. Uh, I love when my boyfriend and I are laughing at something while laying in bed and my big clumsy dog shoves himself, shoves herself in between us because we can't have any fun without her. (laughs) That might be one of my favorite ones. I mean, if you don't get a sense that the dog has a personality after that, you are not paying attention. I love finally getting to be barefoot after a long day of wearing shoes. Oh, that is a great one. I love lighting a scented candle after cleaning the house. I cannot get behind cleaning the house. I reject that, and I reject you wholeheartedly. I love being sober. I love that it makes me way better at shooting pool. I imagine it would, although there are some people that function better. That I've golfed with people who have to be you know, have to have eight beers in them to to relax, to play. And I recommend that. Uh, I love that I'm kinder and softer without alcohol. That is a beautiful one. And I very much relate to that. And it's like, we don't know we're hard until we soften up. And we look at the way that we used to think or act. And it's such a relief. It's such a relief. Feeling soft in a good way is oh it's the best there's so many things it helps with i love the sound of frogs at night i love going for a walk under the street lights in the summer that's a great one i love when my dog is asleep and she's barking in her dream but in real life it sounds like a creepy little high-pitched laugh I love putting in earplugs and immediately feeling emotionally regulated i get that way when i put my pajamas on Uh, I love rainbow sprinkles, chocolate chip cookies, and corner pieces with a shit ton of frosting. I reject strongly your rainbow sprinkles. It is an unnecessary use of sugar. Uh, It's it's bad in every way. And I'm not just talking about your health. If you're going to eat sugar, if there was a list of 9,000 ways to consume sugar, rainbow sprinkles would be number 10,000 on my list. And what I'm, why I'm saying this is I'm letting you know that your loves are testing my patience as a man, not just as a former podcast host, but as a man. I love when someone bears their soul to me completely uninvited, but also completely welcomed. And I love Gene Wilder's performance in Willy Wonka. You, you redeemed yourself with that one. You're out of the doghouse and back into my home as a former podcast host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I don't know what that deep breath was about. It's, it's, a deep breath is never a mistake, is it? Am I wrong? I suppose uh, when you're being pepper sprayed. That would be the only time a deep breath would be a mistake. Uh, (laughs) I run out of steam. Let's wrap this up. Huh? 
I got things to do as a former podcast host. I hope you guys got something out of this episode. I hope I hope you're nice to yourselves today, said the pot to the kettle. <laughs> and if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone and nothing degrades the quality of our life like obsessing about the quality of our life. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely